In the name of the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Today we will study uh, Psalm 3. And if you guys remember, we said before when we started the book of Psalms that the book of Psalms is divided into five different books and written by many different authors. The first two books, which is this psalm is from, is, were mainly written by David the prophet. This is one of the psalms that we call them the Psalms of Lament. And it's one of 14 psalms that actually have a title. So this, the title of the psalm is when he fled from Absalom his son. So this psalm is when David the prophet ran, when his son Absalom tried to form a revolt against him and took over, take over the kingdom. And everybody turned against David and David had to run away with few soldiers into the wilderness. The psalm actually, in the Jewish tradition, it was used to be prayed in the morning uh, because there's a beautiful verse in Psalm 3, it's verse 5, it says, I lie down and sleep, I wake up again because the Lord sustained me. If you think about the period of sleep, you spend about seven to eight hours and you're not aware of what's happening to you. And you wake up in the morning and there we go, all your energy is renewed, all your, all your power is renewed, but also the spiritual fear is renewed and the problems are renewed. So this verse it says, I lie down and sleep, I wake up again because the Lord sustained me. That's why we also as a church include it in the morning hour, in the book, Psalms in the morning hour, because it helps us to remember that every morning God sustained us overnight and now our life with him is being renewed to face the problem of the day. Also, if you guys remember in Good Friday, at the, end, at the very end of Good Friday, what happens is we read the book of Psalms. So we read Psalm 1, Psalm 2, and then Psalm 3. And when it comes to this verse, the high priest, he will bury the, close the burial of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then people either stay, finish the book of Psalms, or go home, finish it at home. When we usually talk about Psalms, it's very, very important to study the structure of each Psalm because it would help us to understand the dynamic of prayer. So when you look at Psalm 3, if you're taking notes, Psalm 3 has three different sections. The first one is lament over the enemies. That's verse 1 and verse 2. Second section is prayer to the Lord. That's verses 3 and 4. Third section is trust in the Lord, 5 and 6. Verse 7 is prayer for deliverance. And verse 8 is hope in the Lord. The structure is important because it helps me to understand the change that happens in prayer. David the prophets will enter the prayer lamenting and crying and sad. And at the very end, he will come out with trust and comes out with gifts from God. And that's important because a lot of times people enter prayer and something specific happens in prayer. They go in with so much sadness, they come out with a lot of peace and a lot of joy. And actually, I recall one of the fathers I know, he was talking about uh, Father Loa Sodoros, and he was telling me that when they had prayer meetings, he would go in with a lot of tears and heavy hearts, and after he comes out of the prayer meeting, he feel like as if all his troubles are gone. And that's what's happening in this psalm. Like, we're coming in with lamenting and sadness, but somehow something happens in prayer, 
And God changes everything for us. So I'll go through the first two verses slowly. The first two verses are the beginning of the prayer, which is laments over the enemies. I'm sad about what the enemies are doing to me. So what is the verse that says, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. David the prophets came to God and told him, God, why is those who are against me are increasing every day? They are, th those who attack me increase every day. And where does this come from? It comes from 2 Samuel 15, 13. When a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of men of Israel are with Absalom. Imagine with me, David the prophet is somebody who was a faithful servant to Israel. He was a wonderful king. And he worked very hard to bring the kingdom together. He worked very hard to put the worship together. He risked his life many, many times, even when he was a child. He fought against Goliath for the sake of Israel. And all of a sudden, all those people turn against him. Everything he did is forgotten. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. David the prophet is now on the run. He left his kingdom and he left his palace and he has few people who are loyal to him. They ran with him. And you see this in 2 Samuel 15, 14. It says, so, so David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. David is running not from his enemies, from his own son. Running from the closest person that should be to him. The enemies are increasing. Every day he's discovering a new problem. Every day he's discovering that those people whom he trusted, they betrayed him. Every day the messengers will come and tell him, by the way, Ahithophel is now with, uh, with Absalom. Uh, you're, the, the, the palace guard are now with Absalom. Every day, new news of who's betraying him. He feels very down. The problem keeps increasing every day. And David feels that he is a minority. He feels that all the people he trusted are gone. They all left him. He has no voice. And now his son, if he captures his father, he could probably kill him. What he's going through is an extremely difficult situation extremely difficult situation extremely difficult because David loves his son and how is he going to deal with that it's not a clear enemy it's his son that's why St. Didymus the blind said some people suffer persecution because they walk in righteousness ways righteous ways and David the prophet, in that story, he was actually walking with God. He didn't do anything wrong. This is why the scripture says, Blessed are you when people revile you, and when liars speak evil against you in account of me. 
So David the prophet's enemies are increasing. And the cry of David the prophet in this psalm is a cry of, like St. Jerome said, of Christ or the saints. Our Lord Jesus Christ can say the same thing. Lord, they have, how they have increased those who trouble me. All the people that our Lord healed and helped and they start crying on, on Sunday, Palm Sunday, say, O Sanna, O Sanna, O Sanna. A few days later, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Even Peter, Judas, the high priest, everybody, they all turned against him. But this is the person who's coming into prayer and he has a big problem that his enemies are so unique, they're increasing, the problem is getting bigger. There is, does not seem to be any solution, any hope, any light of hope that's coming. It's getting bigger. And now look at the second verse. It says, Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God, Salah. What's happening here? There's another problem. What's the problem? People are telling him, God is not going to help you. God is not going to help you. Why are people telling him God is not going to help you? This is very specific actually, because it's important. Long time ago in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David committed an awful sin. He committed adultery and he arranged for a murder of the husband of Bathsheba, Uriah, the Hittite. So God told him, there will be, there will be divisions and wars in your house. So part of him knows that what's happening to him is a consequence of his sin. So it's very possible that David himself or people around him told him, there is no way God is going to help you. Who already, he, you already sinned and God told you there will be war and division in your house. So why are you coming back to God? There's no hope. God is not going to help you. And that's why there's a big difference between when David was running away from Saul and when David was running away from Absalom. When David was running away from Saul, he was pure innocent and he was trying to live a life that is faithful and loyal to God. When he was running with Absalom, he's running after he committed a big sin and his whole household is suffering because of the sin that he's committing. The biggest problem is, the verse here says, many are those who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Who are the people that are telling him there's no help for you in God? It's the people who are close to him. They're asking him to doubt that God will work in his life. People who are in the church, people who are supposed to help him, and to guide him and to tell him God will be with you, that telling him God is not going to help you. One of the things that the devil tries to shake in the time of tribulation is our faith. And what's happening here is David has every reason to doubt that God will help him. The situation is not helping. Some of his best counsels and army are with 
Absalom. He remembers his sins. He remembers the consequence of his sin. There's nothing that could really give him hope. And people telling him he cannot trust in God. More than this, he's running away from Jerusalem. So the place of worship, he does not have access to anymore. If you actually look at the word Absalom, it means peace of his father. Even though Absalom did not bring any peace to his father, it's almost like Absalom reminds you of Judas. Judas who betrayed our Lord by a kiss of peace. So David's son betrayed his father by trying to reconcile with his father earlier on in his life. And then if you guys remember the story of Absalom, he, he, he acted like he was reconciling with his father. He would stay at the city gate. And as people come out, he would tell them, Oh, whatever the king told you, I could do much better than that. For many years, until he started establishing a good relationship with people. And eventually he planned his revolt over his father. So Absalom is somebody who is turning against God, using the means of love and the means of peace. Somebody who stabs you in the back using the love you gave them. The biggest warfare the devil wants us to have is to, un to make us understand that we have no salvation. There's no hope for us in God. David is directing the psalm to God with all his sins, with all his weakness, with all his tough circumstances. He is presenting this to God. If you guys remember something important in the story of David that I like to mention, when David ran away from Jerusalem in the time of Absalom, what happened? I'm going to read a passage to you. It says, And there was a dog also, his dog was one of the priests, and all the Levites with him, bearing the Ark of Covenant of God. And they sat down the Ark of God, and Abithar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the sea. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of, the, of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of God, he will bring me back and show me both, both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you. Here I am, let him do to me as seems good to him. So what is David doing? He says, the, the high priest, when they saw David running away, they brought the covenant. The ark of covenant says, we'll bring it with you. And he says, no, no, no. Put it back in the temple. And if God wants me to come back, I will come back. If God sees that he wants me to pray in front of him and stand in front of him, bring me back. You see, David the prophet, in the most vulnerable time of his life, he did not want to force a, a blessing upon himself that God did not grant him. Sometimes people can use unethical and unspiritual means to receive spiritual blessing. And some people push each other during communion. Is this, does this help? If there's, for example, a procession in the church and people push each other, or relics, people push each other. Or somebody want to meet one of the, the visiting fathers and people keep pushing each other. Sometimes what we need to do is stand and tell God, God, if you allow me this opportunity, that's fine. This spirit of humility is quite important. 
And then look at the way the psalmist did it. After he, after he prayed these two verses, he put the word Salah. If you guys remember the word Salah or Salah, this word we said before, it, come, it has a Hebrew root and it means to lift up. And what happens is the instrument voices go up and people bend down and they respond forever. They respond forever. And, and St. Gregory, he says, this is the stop to allow the person to receive the Holy Spirit. Suddenly, in the midst of singing, stopped, the word stopped, so he can receive the Holy Spirit. That's what St. Gregory said. Basically, once he stopped complaining in prayer, now the Spirit is filling him. The Holy Spirit is filling him so he can offer prayer to God. Offer prayer to God. Now, after this pause, after when he says, why are those who persecuting me increased? People told me not trust in God. And he kind of vented out his, his, his heart, and now he paused, and there's like the filling of the Spirit. Now, there's an immediate shift. And what is that shift going to come from? Once he mentions the name of the Lord. Verse 3, he says, remember verse 3 and 4, he's prayer to the Lord. He's praying to God for, in verses 3 and 4. So verses 1 and 2, he's just explaining his condition. Lamenting. 3 and 4, now he's going to lift up his prayer to God. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. Once he mentioned the name of God, there is a shift in the psalm that happens. What's very important about this verse is that people wanted him to doubt God. But here he says, but you, o Lord, are my shield, for, are a shield for me, my glory, and he who lifts up my, my head. People want him to doubt, but what's the response of David? Once he was filled with the Spirit and he mentioned the name of God, he proclaimed his faith. There's a lot of power in us proclaiming our faith to the world. Sometimes by simply winning a cross or by simply mentioning, for example, that Sunday I have church, I proclaim my faith to the Lord, to the world. And that helps me to overcome my own doubts. That helps me to overcome my own doubt. He's telling God, God, you are a shield for me, my glory, the one who lifts up my head. You know, something quite interesting is that David the prophet, he ran away, but he also ran away with an army. It's not a big army, but it's a decent-sized army. And not only this, this is one of the most trained army at that time. Some of the top guys, the mighty men of David. There's a whole chapter in the book of Samuel about the mighty men of David. David the prophet, when he sat, together, when he sat by himself in the wilderness, he did not sit and say, you know what, let me try to figure out how can I come back and attack Absalom. Let me try to figure out how can I win this war. Let me try to figure out how we're going to assassinate Absalom. He got on his knees and he prayed to God. It is very common for us when people speak bad about us. Our first inclination is let me make phone calls. Let me explain to people what's happening. That's not what David did. 
It's very common for us that we have pity on ourselves and say, why did this happen to me? Why me? Why me? David did not do this. David focused fully on presenting his problem to God. Once he mentioned the name of God, he told God, God, you're my shield. A shield actually pretend, protects the person in multiple directions. Direction. Why does he need a shield that protects him from multiple directions? Because he has a big, big issues. He has issues of people trying to overcome the kingdom. He has an issue from within because he sinned and he feels the guilt of sin. He has an issue of people telling him he cannot trust in God, so he needs a shield. Something to shield him from all, all of that. He's telling him also, God, you are my glory. What does that mean? God, being a king is not my glory. Being a leader over your people is not my glory. Actually, one of the, when David used to introduce himself in the, second, in the book of Second Samuel, he says, the sweet psalmist of Israel. He preferred to call himself the singer. You know, like one of the ranks in the deacons, the first one is Absaltus, singer. How many people would walk around and say, I'm a singer in the church? But he took pride in the fact that he was a singer. He's telling God, God, you are my glory. It is not the fact that I'm a king. It's not the fact that I have an army and I made all these treaties and people know me. It's the fact that you are my God. And that's also important for us because every person can view certain aspects of the life as their glory. Like some people are very, take very, a lot of pride in their country and their nations. They go to Egypt and say, we're from America or from here. That's kind of what gives them glory. Some people are really big on their career. I am Mr. So-and-so or Dr. So-and-so or I work in this company. And I've, or some people look at their beauty as their glory. It's quite important to know what is my glory. Actually, one of the things that Father Tedros Malati mentioned one time, he says, the biggest sin that we can have in our life is that we don't know our purpose. We don't know our glory. For David is telling God, God, you are my shield, my glory, the one who lifts up my head. Nobody else I could rely on except you. David the prophet can speak to God that way because there is a covenant between David and God. There's a covenant between David and God. David understands God. David, you're a sinner. You're the one who caused this problem. You did this, you did that. You did not watch over your son. You did not embrace Absalom, your son. You could have done much more. Absalom is actually upset because he did not take revenge for his sister. You could have said so many things. But he understands the one person that can fix everything is God. And he understands there's a covenant between him and God. What does it mean there's a covenant between him and God? That God told David, I am responsible for you. You will be my king and I'll take care of you. It's almost like when God tells you, I want you to be a father. I want you to be a mother. I want you to be a sibling. I want you to be a servant. And you start a covenant with God. And God says, since you started this covenant, you will rely on me. 
And that's what David said. He says, God, you made me a father. You made me a mother. You made me a brother. You made me a sister. That was not my choice. And now I'm relying on you. The sins of David were not an obstacle for him to pray to God. You guys know in one of the Psalms that we pray in the morning hours, David the prophet prays and tells God what? He tells him, forgive me my sins, for they are many. David comes to God and tells him, God, forgive me my sins. Forgive me my sins. Why? Because I've sinned so much. That's his excuse. Because I'm a big sinner. It's like when in the second passage in the 11th hour we say, Hasten, O Savior, to open to me the fatherly bosom. Why? For I have wasted my life in pleasure. It's telling God, God, look, open your hands so big, so, so big to hug me. Why? What did you do? Did you die for me? No. I'm so dirty. I'm so ugly. I'm so sinful. But there is a covenant between me and you. And I'm coming because I trust in you. That's what David did. This is what he's doing in his prayer. He says, I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hell salah. Why does the Bible say, why does David says, I cried to the Lord with my voice? Why not with my heart? The voice might sound to be like a, like a, weak, a weaker element than the heart. But it's quite important that he said this. Why? Because the enemies are mocking him with, his, with their voices. And they're telling him he cannot trust in God. So they're coming to him with their voices and yelling at him. You cannot trust in God. You cannot trust in God. You cannot trust in God. What is he doing? He's proclaiming his faith. He's praying out loud to God. When the enemy comes and tells you you cannot trust in God, he wants you not to pray. He wants you not to cry to God. So, what's the action you should take? The action you should take is you actually should pray louder. Raise your voice louder. When the enemy comes and tries to make us busy, or try to make us doubt, I proclaim my faith. When he comes and tries to make me lazy, I try to proclaim my will and be more determined. When he comes and tries to make me angry, I try to find peace. When he tries to make me prideful, I try to find ways to wash the feet. When the enemy tries to come and find and cool, find ways to cool off my spirit, I need to respond in an opposite way. You guys know there's a story actually in the paradise of the desert fathers, where a devil, the devil came to one of the monks and he told him, "You you work very hard. You struggle too much." That God has given you 30 more years to live. Then what did this wonderful father told the devil? He told him, he, God is going to give me 30. Thank you for letting me know. I thought he's going to give me 60. So now I have to work a, as, as hard, twice as hard. The devil wants to come. come. Like sometimes people will come and tell you, you know what? Service will never end. The kids will never stop needing. The, the, the ideas will never stop. What is that supposed to do? Is that supposed to make me not do anything? Supposed to make me cool off? Are these the voices of God? And look what David the prophet said. He says, God, where did God hear him? 
God heard me from his holy hill. Why does he say that? You guys remember we said David the prophet ran away to the wilderness and he told the high priest, no, don't bring the Ark of Covenant. If God wants me to come back, I will come back and I will worship him in his holy hill. So when he says God responds to me from his holy hill, it means that God gave him a promise that he will come back to worship in Jerusalem. God responded from his holy hill. So it means David is forgiven. David is accepted in front of God. That's what happened. God is sending him back to a place that David is so familiar with. And do you guys know, for example, when the disciples met our Lord after resurrection, God told them, let's go to Galilee. This is the place of, of, of all the miracles, of all the intimacy. God telling David, I will meet you in the holy hill. You're going to come and worship me again in Jerusalem. We're going to have our old conversation. We're gonna, you're going to pray, and you're going to offer sacrifices, and you're going to sing, and you're going to praise you can do all the things that you like to do. Actually, remember somebody I knew very well who have committed many sins in his life. And I recall we, we, me and him were on a retreat. That was before priesthood. And he said, you know what? It's a chance that the priest is there. I don't know him. Let me confess all the sins. And it doesn't matter then. But he went to the priest and he confessed everything. 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 It's been, it's been like years since he hasn't confessed. After he came out from confessions. That confession. I cannot forget it. He came back and he told me. I feel that I'm flying. Nothing in this world can shake me. Nothing in this world can shake me. By the way, he went into confession, came out. His career did not change. His status did not change. Nothing changed. But he felt that the biggest burden in his life is lifted because heaven is in his hands. It is very sad for those who spend years holding on sin and they don't get it out. When your sins are forgiven, you know that God heard you from his holy hill. And you know right after this, he puts the word Salah, which means the music. The word stops. People bow down. And then the person, like St. Gregory said, gets filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a time to pause and to reflect about what God is doing in his life. Pause to think about what God is doing in his life. So after David, he was forgiven. And God told him, I accepted your prayer from the holy hills. What's going to happen is, David is going to confess his trust in the Lord in verses 5 and 6. He will confess his trust in the Lord. That's why he says, I lie down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. Can you imagine? It's kind of um, quite of an interesting analogy. Imagine like war is happening and people are fighting. And people are killing each other. And you're like, okay, excuse me, excuse me. I'm going to go sleep for eight hours and wake up and then continue the fight. That's exactly what David did. The war is happening. Absalom is taking over Jerusalem. The people around him trying to figure out what's going on. What is David up to? It's a very stressful situation. 
even his loyal friends, they got used to the life in the palace and the easy life and the fun life. And now they're back into the wilderness. So they're waiting for something good to happen, right? And where's David going? going okay, guys, I'm going to go sleep now. This is what happens to a person whom God heard his prayer. That's why St. Macarius the Great, he says, uh, that's why some of the fathers say that the strength of a person is tested in tribulation. The strength of the person who's walking with God, his faith is tested in tribulation. The story is only supposed to mention about St. Macarius the Great. He says, one, one night St. Macarius was walking in the desert and he wanted to sleep, so he entered the tomb. And it was at night. Can you imagine walking into a tomb at night? He couldn't find a pillow, so he found a skull, so he was sleeping on a skull. And then the demon were making noise, and he yelled at the demon so he can go to sleep. It shows you the power of somebody who is walking with God. Also, this verse, by the way, this psalm can also apply to the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this verse is specific. It says, I lie down and sleep, I awoke for the Lord sustained me. And this verse can also refer to the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what's wonderful is that our Lord took the most vulnerable time in our life when we're sleeping, when we're not aware of what's happening around us, to bring the strongest victory. Like if you spend all day struggling and praying and getting closer to God, your night will bring victory. Not shame, not sin. And this is what David's saying. I lie down and slept. No issue at all. The enemies are increasing. They're multiplying. They're doing all of this stuff. It doesn't matter. I will not be afraid of 10,000 of people who have set themselves against me all around. He says, if I am in the middle of 10,000 people, I will not be shaken. What happened? That he started three verses before. He says, why have those who persecuted me multiplied? Now he says, if 10,000 come around me, there's no problem. He slept, he woke up, all renewed. Why? Because the Lord sustained me. What happened is, the situation did not change. But David changed. David realized that God is with him. David realized that God is offering him the strength and the glory and the shield. There's actually a, a wonder father in, in the monastery of Surian. His name is Abuna Mitteus of Surian. And he was the father of confession for many monks in Surian. And at the end of his life, he received many diseases. He was paralyzed. He, was, he lost his sight. Maybe the only thing that God kept for him was his hearing. So he can hear the confessions of his children. But the one person that could talk about God the best was Abu Namita Everything around him seems difficult. He can't walk. He can't see. He can't even go to church. But God has given him something special. 
There is no despairing in God. The children of God are always being renewed. The children of God are always being renewed. And that's what's happening with David the prophet. Now, verse 7 is prayer for the deliverance. It says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Ten thousands of people around David, and David says, I'm not scared. Why is David not scared? Do you have a strong sword? Are you going to fight? you have a different plan? He says, no. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. So the response to the enemies, they rise against me, well, God is going to rise against them. They said, no salvation for me, well, God said there's salvation for me. The enemy is trying to do me wrong, God will do me right. This is a reversal of all the attacks of the enemy. And since the Bible says the, he broke the teeth, why? Because the teeth is what bites, what harms. Basically saying they have no strength anymore. They have no strength anymore. How did God save David from Absalom? If you guys remember the story, God allowed somebody to give Absalom a long advice. So Absalom was not able to maintain the kingdom. That's it. It was not, it was not something that was miraculous from our own eyes. But the Bible and the scripture, when you read 2 Samuel, it says God wanted to defeat the council of Ahithophel. God saved David from the lion. After he's about to bite him, God saved him. Last minute, God saved him. So also for me, this verse is quite interesting. Because David the prophet loved his son very much. And he cried over his death. Him, Arise, O Lord, save me, my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Who is the enemies of David that he's trying to be saved from? David's heart is actually full of love. He was changed and he was full of love even toward his own son. even toward his own son. Yes, he's not here wishing his enemies to be destroyed and to die, but he's wishing for their plans and their evil work to, be, to cease. The last verse is hope in the Lord. It says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people, Salah. Now, at the end of, at the, end of the story, he says, you know what? God already saved me. You look at this, look at this verse. He says, God, you have, the verse before it, says, God, you have struck all my enemies. Even though David the prophet was still complaining a few verses ago, but you already know that God is going to take care of it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Now he's testifying 
to the work of the Lord. He tells them, your blessing is upon your people. One of the biggest blessings that people can receive is peace. We started in peace, but now we have, we started war, but now we have peace. And that's why in the liturgy we say the sacrifice of peace. And the sacrifice of peace actually is our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. You see, the psalm started from a place of worry and distress to a place of salvation to the Lord and depending on the Lord and blessing upon everybody. If you look through the psalm, and usually all the psalms this happens, you see a complete change in mood from verse 1 until verse 8. You come in with a lot of complaining and worrying, and then you stop in the middle of your prayer, you meditate, you mention the name of the Lord, you pray to God. As you pray to God, your trust in God increases. And as your trust in God increases and trust in the covenant of who God is, not of your own sins, not of your own past, not of your own history, then you start asking for deliverance. And once you ask for deliverance, then what happens is all your hope becomes in the Lord. Every morning we pray the psalm. Because psalm, the psalm gives us a new beginning, a new change, a new hope, and glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.